Hello, and welcome to another Profiles of Endurance. I'm Father Scott Vanderveer. The scene of George Floyd, an unarmed black man, being killed by a white police officer in Minneapolis last month has shaken our country to its core and left all of us asking why we are still gripped by America's original sin of racism, even in 2020, more than 50 years after the civil rights movement led by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It is clear that all of us must take a role in purging our society of this evil. And all of us are struggling to figure out what our particular role might be in that. Today I'm speaking with Joan Lipscomb Arthurton. Joan is a teacher in the South Colony School District. She's been teaching for 20 years and most of her career has been spent in that district. For the past several years, she's been working at the Capital District Youth Detention Facility and working with some of the young people who've gotten themselves in big trouble and trying to help them turn things around before it's too late. She is a woman of color who was raised in Ravina, the home of St. Patrick's Church, where I'm a pastor. The Lipscombs were the only black family at St. Patrick's Parish as she was growing up. And she explains how they felt very connected with the rest of the Ravina community and that her family filled her life with love and acceptance and gave her a, a great foundation on which to build, a bedrock of confidence that she draws on to this day. But as a black woman in America in 2020, she has some thoughts that are really important for us to hear about what our role might be in making the message that black lives matter a core part of our personal identity and how we can build more and more unity and cooperation among all the races until the day comes that we recognize our role as members of God's one holy family. So Joan Lipscomb Arthurton is with us now. And Joan, let's start at the beginning. Talk to us about your family and your community growing up. So growing up for me um, in Ravina was a wonderful experience. My parents um, gave my brothers and I, I think, you know, just a wonderful childhood and a wonderful um, family experience and um, just full of love. And when I think back on it, um, I, I was loved. I was loved by my parents. I was mm. loved by my extended family. I was loved by our friends. Um, and I felt very protected. Um, I felt um, like we had everything we wanted and needed. Um, it, it was just, you know, my, my memory takes me back and, um, you know, if I could go back to my childhood, I would because it was just, it was fantastic. What a nice thing to be able to say. So many people had traumas in their childhood that make them want to, you know, almost forget. And, and your childhood is, is such a, a happy memory in your life. It is. And, um, Ravina, Queemans, you know, they were small communities. Um, we knew everyone. Everyone knew us. Um, church was a big part of growing up. Um, I didn't go to school in Ravina, but I had many friends who went to school in Ravina be and because of church and sacraments and um, all of that, you know, sports, being on the swim team in Ravina, um, it was just great. It was great. So you, you wound up going to our the church where I'm now, the pastor, Church of St. Patrick. Your family was very involved. Your mother continues to be very involved today, well into her 80s there. Um, and the community is is diverse in some ways for a small town, but in other ways, it's it's not. And so you were one of the, the non-white families in town. And 
I'm not sure how many other non-white families there were. When you look back at our town and you look back at where you went to school, which was actually in Albany, um, how how often were you getting to spend time with with other people who were not white? What 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 would you say if you were to guess a percentage of the community and and then the school that you went to? How much of that population was non-white? Well, for my my school, um, there were about maybe two hundred forty two hundred fifty girls, mm. and if if ten percent of that population was non-white, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um. We were the only black family at St. Mm. Um, and when I spent time with other blacks, it was my family. Yeah, it was my family. Um, you know, there was a there's a black church in Queemans Riverview Baptist Church mm-hmm. where I I would go with my grandmother occasionally on a Sunday. Um, that's actually the church my mother was born and raised in. Mm. Um, you know, she's a convert to Catholicism, but we spent most of our time with, with, you know, we were surrounded by, by white people. All of our friends were white. Did that present a bit of a challenge for your parents in helping you to understand relationships and roles? Did, how did they, how did they chat with you about race? What kind of messages were they offering you about what race means. We didn't talk about race. There was, it was like, there was nothing to talk about. Ah. You know, our, our friends were white and it really didn't matter. There was no, there was no dividing line. It was just, oh, we're going over to so-and-so's house. Or so-and-so's coming over to our house. Or, you know, you're going to school here, you know. And, and it wasn't even about, you know, when I think about our parents sending us out of Ravina, it wasn't because um, they thought Ravina was was a, a, a less a lesser school system. Mm. It was that my par- my parents always wanted us to have the best. Yeah, and the best was to go to the schools in Albany, not because the students in Albany were any better, not because of any other reason, but. That's where, you know, they wanted us to go to the best schools to have the best opportunity for life after. Yeah. Um, but we didn't talk about race. It was never, it was never an issue. How it about was, when you got into uh, being more social around teenage years, it things something shifts in most people's lives when they become adolescents and they start caring an awful lot about their peer group and their family recedes sometimes a little bit during those years. What, how did your peer group communicate about race to you growing up? It didn't matter. It did not matter at all because we just didn't, we didn't define ourselves that way. You know, you were in in high school, we were in a peer group because you played sports or you were in a peer group because you were in drama club Mm. or you were in a peer group because you lived, you know, in the same few blocks as in other girls or whatever. Um, I was very confident. I was and I still am. Yes. Um, I was very confident. My parents gave me that. Um, especially my dad and I was fearless. Nothing, Mm. you know, nothing ruffled me and I, I didn't look for it. You know, I, I didn't, you know, um, I, I didn't look for a reason to feel, you know, outcast or, or un, un duly treated or disrespected or anything. So even in high school, it was, it was not even, an issue. We just all came together. You know, we, yeah. we just all came together. It, and, um, it's so, it's never, impressive. Yeah. I was never made to feel, I was never made to feel less than because of, because of the color of my skin. Mm. When was, huh? when was the first time that it wasn't so simple in your life? How, what stage of life were you in when, when it got, you experienced something that didn't follow that pattern? 
I don't even know if it was like, I, I can't even say it was college. Um, you know, where different things happen in our lives, different experiences, you know, you're away from home, you're by your, you know, you're by yourself in the big city or whatever. Um, I probably didn't really, you know, I can't, I feel like perhaps it should have happened sooner or it might have happened sooner, but I just haven't had many experiences that I can say were, you know, based on, you know, I was mistreated because of race. Yeah. Um, you know, I've dated, you know, outside of my race and, you know, you might get a look here or there, but there was never anything like, you know, blatant. Um, and it, you know, I certainly wasn't the first person, you know, to date, you know, a white guy. So it wasn't like, you know, people seeing me and someone else was the first time they had seen that, you know? Um, I did have a bad experience or an unfortunate experience a few years ago when I was shopping. Um, and, um, my husband and I, he wasn't my husband at the time, but, Mm. um, you know, we were, we were in a store and, um, we went in and we were looking around and, you know, you, you know, somebody's working at the front desk and okay, they're on the phone, but you know, eventually they're going to come over and ask you how you're doing and can they help you? And that never happened. Mm. And um, there was no one else in the store. And we were at first, I was kind of like, okay, this isn't, you know, this isn't really happening right now, but it did. Mm. And so no one ever came over and we were just kind of looking around. It was a store for, it was a women's store. And, uh, so we waited a little while and nothing happened. Nobody like really spoke to us. So, so we left and, you know, Frank and I were just, we're like, wait, you know, that didn't just happen. Did it? You know, like really did that just happen? So I took the next step and I called like the head store and I spoke to a woman on the phone and she was apparently appalled on the other end and she said oh my god you know we just had training for that like i can't believe that just happened i'm really gonna i'm gonna get to the bottom of this you know blah blah Mm, blah mm. and um and i never heard any more i never heard from her again i thought she'd you know call me and at least say you know i took care of it you're more than welcome to go back you know we'll give you a ten dollar coupon but none of that ever happened and so um I haven't been in that store since and, but you know, I haven't had any, an experience like that before either. So, or, or since I should say, yeah. Um, yeah. But that's probably when it's been the most blatant to me. Sure. Um, yeah. I haven't, uh, experienced anything like that since either, you know, uh, towards me or Frank. Um, I haven't seen anything like that since. Does that, does the fact that you personally have not experienced some of the things that we hear about in the news or that other members of the black community have talked about, does that change the way you respond to what is happening in the news right now? How do you, when you look at the uh, the current situation with the strife in our society and the uh, the the terrible sadness over... George Floyd's death at the hands of police and and the uh, the resulting um, protests and the and the uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. What are your thoughts as someone who uh, is a member of the Black community but doesn't necessarily share all of the same experiences of mistreatment that we hear are are common for for many others. Uh-huh. Well, it doesn't, um, it, it doesn't change it for me. You know, I'm, I'm a black person and, um, when something like what happened to George Floyd happens, that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you've never had an experience like that or not. Mm. Uh, and, um, I've, it, yeah, um, 
it, it doesn't change it, you know, because that could happen. That could have been, you know, just like everyone said that I was looking at. I was thinking of my son. You know, I've got a husband. Mm. You know, I just hope every night my husband comes home and I don't get a call. Yes. I've got three brothers. I've got nephews. I've got cousins. I've got an uncle. Mm. You know? And mm. it, it, it doesn't matter whether it's a family member or not. You know, when that something like that happens, that happens to 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 every every black person, everybody, anybody who knows and loves black people. It, it doesn't matter, and yeah. that's just humanity. Mm. You know, that's just doesn't even it doesn't even matter if you're if you're black. You know, to some to some degree, that's just that's just inhumane. Mm-hmm. To George, but. Um, no, I don't. I don't. I don't. Um, I don't exclude myself from from that just because I haven't had a lot of experiences. Mm. Um, because that that was based on race. That was based on hate. Yeah. That was that was hate, and it um, you know whether uh, it comes out, you know that those two had a history, you know George and and that officer, um, but that's hate. Mm. And um, that that touches that touches everyone. Absolutely, that everyone. One of the things I shared in a recent uh, YouTube video that I that I produced in response to what's going on right now is I shared that I, as a a priest and uh, uh, raised in a in a Catholic family that had really strong values, that. Um, even though I consider myself a bit removed from this struggle because I don't have firsthand experiences of, um, of, of racist interactions, I've realized as I've looked back over my life in reflecting on what, what this, this crisis in our country has caused us to consider I've thought back to some of those moments of racism that I kind of covered over in my life. Things like hearing an uncle of mine who was a police officer um, talk. He didn't know anyone was in the room, but there was a news story about an alleged crime involving a person of color. And he grumbled the N-word under his breath. And I heard it, you know, and... uh, uh, I, and so I would I would have said without examining that situation more closely. Oh, I wasn't raised with racism because I wasn't taught that that was okay, but I was taught the confusing message that someone I loved had um, at least in secret some some uh, some of that some of that bubbling in him. And I was sharing that my grandmother, who I loved very much, often would just t- she would lock her doors in certain neighborhoods and say to us, "Lock your doors." And mm-hmm. I, she didn't tell us why, but I, when I looked around, I could see that the people that in, in those neighborhoods had different colored skin. I talked about the fact that even in my time as a priest, there had been an accusation of a man in the parish while doing a parish duty saying some racial, racistly intolerant things in mixed company. And so I guess that has caused me to recognize, oh my gosh, this has been going on around me and I treated it as isolated incidents and I treated it as if it was not happening in my life, but, uh, but it, it has come to my shore and I am affected by the fact that people, you know, close to me have, have engaged in this in this way. So I guess it makes me feel one of the reasons why I think this, this conversation is important is I see myself as a white person often as a bystander in this issue. And as a, as a bystander, I feel often like, well, I don't know what I can do because it would be silly for me to speak for the black community about this. I mean, I, I, I don't think I have any status as a spokesperson. Um, other than, and as a, as a human being, I always want to stand up for what's right. But I find myself... I think I found myself feeling a little bit powerless or removed. And I think that what I'm seeing now, especially after um, 
the Aubrey murder jogging. Yes. You know, just re that that also is completely chilling and causes me to now understand why families are speaking up and saying a lot of a lot of parents of black young men say don't ever run in public. It's not safe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I'm finding myself realizing I am not able to be a bystander because this will not change on its own. It's not right. going to go down easily. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about that? What, what would you say to a person who, who feels as the way I've described, like they're a bystander and they, they don't know what to do? Well, honestly, I feel like I'm a bystander Mm. Um, because I have the sense that, you know, here I am in little Albany and at least where I live here, you know, there's nothing, nothing amiss here. Um, Mm. And I feel like now after seeing the, the, the aftermath of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, um, that if we remain silent, whether you're black or white or whatever color you are, that just perpetuates the problem. Yes. You know, it's like, you know, it's like you're in the, the, the grocery store, the sauce is in aisle four all over and you just walk by it and don't report it so that it can get cleaned Uh up, you know? So, um, it has to start, you know, that's, that's where the silence has to end. Mm. Mm. You know, whether if if you're, you know, if you're in the company of, of, of people and they're saying something racist, whether it's against blacks or Asians or whatever, if you sit there, even if you don't, if if you don't agree with it or whatever, you've got to say something Mm. because it, it might not stop. You know, they'll, they'll leave that party and they'll go on to the next place and they'll say it again. Mm. But at least you've, you've spoken up to let people know, I don't agree with it. And you've put the other people on notice. Yes. You know, you put the other people on notice, like, you know what, you know, that's, that's not right. Mm. You know, that's not acceptable. And I don't accept that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, I wrestle with, as a black person, as a black woman, who's well, you know, I'm past those childhood days, um, as to whether I'm black enough, Mm. you know, because I haven't marched, I haven't protested, I haven't, you know, held up a sign or uh, driven around with anything on my windows or anything like that. You know, I haven't caused a stir. I haven't uh, written a letter or, or, or anything. Hmm. So, um, you know, and I think now, you know, when you look at what our country is going through with coronavirus and, you know, yeah, if we can just get past this, if we can just, if we can just return to normalcy is, is, is the battle cry. Yes. But you can't return, you can't return to normalcy. Normalcy is why we are where we are. Yes. The, you know, when the fears and coronavirus is over, hope, hopefully, and there's a vaccine and, you know, we're not running around with masks on and standing six feet apart and all this stuff. You know, it's like we've got to reinvent ourselves. Yes. We've got to reinvent ourselves. Otherwise, something else is going to come, whether it's health related or, or like societal. And this place is going to go up in smoke. It, it feels like we are learning for the first time that this American experiment is fragile. Yeah. It could all go up in smoke if we don't protect it and treat it right. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, um, things have to start, you know, there's so many arenas in which, you know, something can take hold. You know, you think of, you know, uh, pro athletes, you know, they, they, they're so, you know, their message is so powerful and we live and die on our athletes. 
you know, um, entertainers, um, um, you know, so many people who can, you know, sort of ignite, you know, ignite the fight. But, you know, I can't get to LeBron James. Uh. I can't get to, um, you know, Matthew McConaughey. You know, I'm just thinking of actors. It's got to start right here. It's yes. got to start right here, and then it's got to grow. You know, it's got to grow, and people have to, um, you know, myself included. You know, if you're not, if you're not sure what people are dealing with in a community, well, then you know, educate yourself, or you know, like go to a common council meeting, or mm. you know, find um, a, a forum, or if if you have any little tinge of you know, gee, I might be racist or whatever, you know, find a, find a, a service of a, of a, of an ethnicity that, you know, you're not familiar with and go, go yeah. on a Sunday, you know, go on a Sunday and see, and see what it's like. Or the next time you hear about, you know, there's going to be a meeting about such and such, or, you know, people are gathering and, you know, there, there's so many ways to find out all that. You can't say you didn't know about it because, mm. you know, there's all these outlets to find out that stuff, mm-hmm. um, you know, or, you know, the next time you're in the grocery store and, you know, you see a black person, you know, why don't you look at them and smile, Yeah. you know, or, or hold the door or whatever the case might be, Yeah. you know, um, you know, there's, there's a whole right now on, uh, on Netflix, they're featuring, They've got a whole uh, library of movies related to movies and documentaries related to uh, the black experience. And it's entitled Black Lives Matter. And it's like Mm. a whole library of movies. And I've seen many of them, um, but many of them I haven't. And I'm trying to to start to to watch them. Um, And um, many of them are excellent. They're excellent you know, either the documentary or the movie itself. And it, it, it runs, you know, the movies run the gamut from, you know, comedy to drama to, you know, very serious, um, very serious uh, themes. Um, but it's, it's excellent. Mm. It's excellent. So if you get a chance, you know, start to, start to knock those movies down. And you said it's Netflix and you can yes. search under Black Lives Matter. Yeah, search under Black Lives Matter. They've got a whole library of um, of movies, um, and like I said, documentaries. You know, documentaries. Um, they've got the one on the Central Park Five when they see us. Mm. Um, there's a series on Madam C.J. Walker and how she built her um, cosmetics um, business. It's really yeah, it's great. Mm. Awesome. Awesome. I, I, I will check that out. And, you know, I realize for a lot of people, that is an, that's a first step. You know, that's almost, that's just doing your homework. That's right. doing your homework. And, uh, and, and it doesn't cost any, well, if you have a Netflix subscription, it doesn't cost anything. And it is, um, so many of us already have that. But also, I think it is, it feels like some of the other things that we need to do are a little harder perhaps. And so it's good to start with something a little bit easier. And and the reason I bring up a little harder is this. I'll never forget hearing Maya Angelou, this, uh, the poet and professor and author, just an American treasure. She was w- interviewed once and was asked, of the virtues, which is the most important to have? And she said, courage is the most important virtue. And she said, the reason it's most important is that without courage, you cannot practice the other virtues consistently. You'll always be erratic with them. And she used an example. She said, if someone is, you might say, I, I do not believe in being racist. I don't approve of racism. I don't approve of judging people by the color of their skin. Great. She said, but then, what are you going to do if you're in the break room? And someone who's kind of the popular person at work says, oh, well, you know, that guy, or you know, you know how they are, whatever, whatever the race, whatever the ethnicity right, is that they're right. doing that with. She said, 
If you have courage, then you will be able, even in that moment, even though you didn't see it coming, to say the right thing. She said, without courage, even if you know the right thing to say, you won't be able to do it in a situation where you're afraid. Or if your your boss says it, now here's somebody with role power over you. Right, right. I guess, so my question... my question is for myself, and then I'll, I'll, I'll ask it of you too. I wonder how I can gather the courage I need to be ready so that if someone says something about these people, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to name any of these groups, but these are some of the things you hear. Those people are terrible drivers, or these people are bad with money, or the people, you know, that neighborhood is not good because of the people who live there. Mm-hmm. How will I be ready, whatever whatever it is, to to say the right thing, to say what's right without counting the cost? How can I have courage? And so I, this is a hard question, but I guess I ask you, um, what would you, as a woman of color, like for a bystander, someone like me, to say if someone is going toward the line? of racism and they're they're trying to make it acceptable. They're making a joke. They're just, you know, they're having a drink and they're saying something. It starts off funny. And whether it's Native Americans or Asians or blacks or whomever, um, they start going there. They start going there. What what would you say? Um, and this is a very personal question. I, I don't I don't pretend that there's a manual that has an answer. What would you like to hear out of the mouth of a of a of a good person of faith who doesn't wish to be racist but consider themselves a bystander and maybe doesn't always have the courage or the words to know what to do what do you think is is a good starting point for doing the right what's the next right thing to do there um You know, and that's that's not always easy, especially if you're, say, the only person on that other, you know, on that other side, if you're there by yourself. Um, but that's what it takes. It takes one person to, to make to take that stand, mm. to put yourself in someone in that other person's shoes. Mm hmm. You know, and understand or try to understand what it's like for that person. You know, like I have to step back and say, you know, what must it be like? Because even though I'm black, I, I, you know, I don't have the same experience that my husband has. Mm. I don't have the same experience that my brother's hat Mm. or perhaps that, you know, my, my father had. So you have to think about that and then say, well, what would I, you know, would I want someone to stand up for me? Yeah. If if the shoe was on the other foot, Mm. you know, and I'm, I'm saying this to you now and I have to, I have to double down and do this myself. Yeah. You know, but, these, these are the things we have to do if things are going to have any chance of changing. Yes. You know, because that person who's talking like that has talked like that a million times before. Yes. And he or she is most likely a bully. Yeah. So, are you going to stand up to the bully? You know, what's the worst that's going to happen? You know, what's the worst that's going to happen? He or she is going to look at you like, you know, what are you talking about? Or, maybe you'll be the one to set that person down. Yeah. You know, so, I don't know. It does. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to do any type of, you know, public 
outcry, protest, mm. rally, all of that takes courage. It ta- and it takes courage to stand up to a bully. You know, it's great that you said bully because one of the things, you're a teacher by profession and I'm a former teacher uh, from my life before I was a priest. And I know that a big topic in our schools today's uh, today is bullying. Bullying is a big thing that we talk about and bullying can cover, you know, a wide array of behavior. Uh, but one of the things that I've learned from, from the training I went through in an anti-bullying curriculum that was brought to my school when I was teaching at St. Pius Catholic School in the Albany area 10, okay. over 10 years ago was that it's very hard to affect the behavior of a bully. Bullies often have some kind of predisposition to that that uh, makes it hard to reform them. And those who are um, directly affected by bullies are often um, overwhelmed by the by the trauma of the experience. It's hard to strengthen them for the next encounter. The real group you have to work with is the bystanders. Because right. if when the bully strikes, if the 95% of the people that are standing there that have nothing to do with it say, oh no, oh no you don't. They right. have a lot of power. They're the sleeping giant. So I'm struck that as you say this, it's important for those of us who call ourselves bystanders in the race issues that we face to recognize we're the sleeping giant. Mm -hmm. We're the one who can tell the bully, no, not on our, not on our watch. We won't, I won't stand here and have someone say that. Not when our country's being torn apart at the seams by this very sentiment. Right, right. And that's why, you know, it's, it's just wonderful that you know so many people mobilized and were out there yes many 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 whites many many white people people of all different backgrounds have been out you know marching and and protesting for for something better yeah yeah for the for the brutality to stop you know for for justice yeah yep, it's not just it's not just you know it we're we're tired of you know the coronavirus has has exhausted us all yes but people good people people who want you know equality people who want justice people who want um fairness you know everybody's just exhausted yes and that's what you saw that's, or, you know, that's, that's what you, you've, you've seen, you know, and it's just, it's, um, uh, interesting that it's, you know, it's hot and, you know, that just seems to amplify everything, you know, it when does. it's hot, you know, when it's hot out and, you know, uh, people are sweating and they're hot, you know, and then you got a pandemic and people are wearing masks and, oh. you know, don't get too close cause you're going to spread the virus and then the virus is going to keep going, but what it is, yeah. you know. Amen. I think your name, and I think that that also it does explain we're in a we're in a bit of a perfect storm right now, where you've got economic trouble as a result of a virus which threatens us all, and then of course you've got this systemic problem, which a lot of I mean I I think part of what's shocking about this is there were some really good years there where it felt maybe like we were becoming a post racial society or some of us from our right. perspective, thought we might right. be, you know, right. and, and it felt comfortable and it felt like maybe we've gotten past that. And it okay. felt okay. almost like we might have been able to say, oh, the civil rights movement is complete now. Mm. You know, the, the work is complete. And what we have seen is, no, it's no. not. It is not. And that's yeah. why nobody gets to be really a bystander, even if we feel like we are, because right. the work is not done. And we cannot hand our children a society that hasn't made progress on this. No. And um, when President Obama was in office, you know, I think a lot, a lot of black people, a lot of, a lot of people felt like, oh, my God, you know, mm. he's calmed the borders. But no black person probably thought, you know, oh. We've made it. Ah. You know, yeah, it was great. It was wonderful. It was awesome. Yeah. You know, four years and then another four years. 
Um, but what I, 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 I lament for him is his legacy, mm. you know, and not, you know, he, I think he was great and, you know, first black president and, you know, all of that. But, you know, when you pass that torch on, you hope that it's, it's going to someone who is acting in, you know, just following at least with some dignity, at least with some, you know, modicum of, of what, of what you did and how you, uh, presided over the nation. Mm. And, um, um, you know, we know, we know that's not the case, but, um, yeah, it, it was calm for that time. Mm. And of course, everyone in the country wasn't happy that, you know, we had a black man at the helm, but, um, he brought, you know, calm and, and, and some, um, sensibility to things that, you know, our country is, is lacking and in need of now. And I think it's important for people listening who may be, um, it's something I think that's really important to name that there are people who did not like the, the administration of President Obama for politically, political ideology reasons. They're, you know, committed Republicans who, uh, and that, but I think no matter your political persuasion, it's fair to say that, um, President Obama represented his presidency 50 years after the civil rights movement represented something more than his personality or his political ideology to have a black. And I, I think it was noteworthy as a nation that we, and I think some people took note of this. We elected a black president before we elected a female president of any, of any race. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not unnoted either that we, you know, that's something that hasn't occurred yet. And so I think, um, it is interesting. And I think anybody who's listening, who says, you know, are you trying to persuade us to, uh, espouse democratic (laughs) principles? I don't think that's the topic of this. You know, the topic is he represented, um, a, a progress that we made and a way of, um, he carried the office with a, um, a, a dignity that I think made a lot of people, um, feel connected to his presidency because of what it represented for our society. Right. Right. And I think, um, so, you know, you've got, you know, you've got a black president and black people are proud and, you know, their chests are out, and, you know, life is great. You know, I got somebody in there who looks like me, talks like me, mm. dances like me, everything. You know, mm-hmm. when, she, when he and uh, Mrs. Obama would have those specials on with, like, people singing at the White House. Like, did you see those? Those were awesome. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. That, that was awesome. But I think what happened, too, in our last election was you had a lot of black people saying, oh, well, our guy's out of there, so ah. I'm not going to vote. You know, oh. you know, my guys, my guys out. Why, why am I going to go vote? Mm. You know, and and you can't have that mentality. Mm. You know, it's like no, we gotta, we gotta mobilize. Everybody's got to vote because otherwise, you know, what's going to happen? Yeah, you know what's going to happen if everybody doesn't get out there and vote? Right. So. Because there, we have to be honest about the fact that what's been unmasked in our society is there will always be people who don't like a Democratic presidential candidate for no matter who that person is because their their issue is not based on race. It's oh, based no. on ideology. But we are now learning that some of the people who say Barack Obama was a terrible president are saying that because of race. Right. They, oh, sure. And that, and I think that's something that uh, we would have liked to have not seen. Right. I know I would have liked to have not had to see that. I would okay. have liked to have been able to say, "No, I'm sure, I'm sure we're beyond that." And yeah. it's painful, yeah, yeah. And of course, now that feels now to say that right now in 2020 feels foolish. But I have to own that foolishness. I really thought we were in a different place than we were. 
you know. And uh, I, yeah, which which brings up the fact that uh, one of the one of the leaders who created the vision for America that I think a lot of us were raised knowing was the goal was uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who taught, you know, that famous I Have a Dream speech. So many, in many parts of our country, kids memorize it. I've never memorized it, but I, I know so much of it. You know, let freedom ring. I know, you know, I know this, this speech so well. Um, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics that will join together in that, in that great uh, spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty we're free at last. And I think, I mean, I get goosebumps saying it. You're, you're a teacher. And so you, you've shared that vision with your students. On top of that, you've been the chair of a committee that gives scholarships to students and, and, and coordinates a, um, an annual celebration for the birthday of, of Dr. King. What does his message, what does his life and his movement mean to you now in 2020? Well, I think that um, civil disobedience uh, could be a catalyst for change. Mm. Um, you know, you can't sit and wait around forever. You mm. know, I could say patience, but I think what we've seen in the last few weeks is that, you know, you can't, you can't wait. You know what are we waiting for? Mm. Um, things have to things have to happen now, and things have to change now. Mm. Uh, and you can do it, you know, in a civil, organized way. Um, but that if you want to affect change and 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 make things truly better and equal, um, it has to happen. It has to happen now. It has to get started now. Yes. He taught us that justice delayed is justice denied. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know the other thing that I think I love that he taught, and it's he, he borrowed this from Gandhi, but Gandhi borrowed it from Jesus, that, um, that, that idea that nonviolence is always the way to peace because he said you can't, you can't fight hate with more hate. Only love can drive out hate. Right. Just like you don't you don't make the the darkness of midnight go away by adding darkness to it. Only sunrise can do that. You know. So I find that so so powerful. But the thing that was the centerpiece of his work was those who are oppressed must live with such integrity and virtue that their oppressors feel embarrassed to be hurting such just people. You know, when you are, when you're beating someone who refuses to fight back, even though they've got the, they've got the strength, but they refuse because their principles won't allow it. He said, we we shame our oppressors with our beauty and our, and our love. And I, I'm just so um, captivated by, by that because uh, I think for a lot of people just, just to exist as a person from a minority group in this culture, in this climate, is so dignified. Just to survive, you know, and, and live and, and be productive and generative in a society where um, you're not always appreciated, you know? It's so... T- what, is your, what is your dream when you think about what you want 2030 to be like? What is your dream for our country now? 2030? Should, year we, 2030? should we be thinking further out? Or do you want to think closer? <laughs> I think I want to think closer. Good, uh, good. Yeah, 2030. That's that's a ways away. Um, well, that's 10 years. Yeah, that's 10 years down the line. But yeah, let's get it closer. Um, I would say that I would want... Um, more calm and peace in our nation. Mm. Um, and start to, 
you know, a real active addressing of, you know, some of, of you know, the systemic problems in our society. Um, you know, coronavirus is going to come and it's going to go and, and those things are still going to be there and we have to work to eradicate them. Mm. You know, but I just hope we can get some sense of peace and calm right here in our in our country mm. you know um i've always been proud to be american mm. but um lately i and you know before george before george floyd's death um i've i've questioned that mm. i've questioned that um i can't imagine how other people and countries see us and, and what they think. Um, it's just a travesty. Mm. And um, I hope we can realize the, the peace and um, um, dignity that our country is accustomed to having very soon. I hope that comes back very soon. Well said. Well said. We, we're used to being looked up to by other nations, and it is humiliating and embarrassing to be um, questioned, seen as questionable by other nations for reasons that we, uh, we can't refute. Right. Right. Yeah. This has been so helpful, Joan, so helpful. I just have a, a few final questions that I'd like to ask you because I've asked everyone that we've been chatting with in this series to, about these questions because they seem like big questions. A lot of them have to do with coronavirus particularly, but obviously all of the struggles with um, racial injustice and Black Lives Matter dovetail here too. Um, the first question is, there's many people who say that everything happens for a reason. People who are very spiritually attuned are, are prone to say that, but also, you know, other folks as well. What do you think? Does everything happen for a reason or do things just happen? I think things happen. Mm. And we are left to... Um, to react to it, however that reaction is. Mm. Um, and I was trying to think of an example when I was thinking about um, that question. Um, oftentimes, I think, say, when a person gets sick, you know, or terminally sick, you know, and you say, oh, you know, everything happens for a reason. And I was thinking of when my dad got sick, and I'm saying, you know, did my dad get sick for a reason? Like, mm. what was the reason? Mm. You know, like, I would much have preferred he not have gotten sick, and he was still here now. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think things happen, and then our test is how do you, how do you, um, navigate that how do you execute whatever you're going to do in, mm. in light of in light of what has happened mm -hmm. um that's the best i can come up with for that that's well i think that's that's great all of us scratch our head over it we won't won't it be great when we're the other side of the veil and in heaven and we'll say oh now i get it <laughs> now i get it um one of the reasons we started having these chats in the first place is that coronavirus is pushing all of us uh, to the brink of our endurance. You know, you, you described it so well when you said it's exhausted all of us. And I imagine that uh, when I think of some of those people who are, who are still living from the civil rights era, they're exhausted by the endurance it's taking to uh, see the dream of, of Dr. King uh, realized. What do you think? You've endured many things. What do you think is the key to practicing the virtue of endurance? What's the key to enduring? Well, let me let me 
say two things. I'll, I'll tell you the key, but let me just make something clear because I, I thought about this. And, mm. You know, when I think of enduring, um, you know, I think of, say, a soldier, you know, a veteran who, who you know, fought in World War II and made it home and, you know, he still lives with losing you know, fellow soldiers and, you know, coming back to, to America and, and living or say a Vietnam vet, mm. you know, having to endure that and then come home to a country that wasn't so uh, uh, welcoming and, and having to endure that. Mm. Um, I, I don't feel like I've, you know, had a struggle. I don't feel like I've, you know, endured anything, you know, so tumultuous in my life and that goes back to I think my childhood you know my parents gave me a great life and you know life has been great for me I mean probably the most I've endured is you know the loss of family members and most significantly the loss of my father yeah yeah but having said that the key to enduring the loss of my father is something that I do that with something that my father gave me and my father gave me an unshakable confidence mm. and that has allowed me to do many things in my life just from, you know, graduating from high school, going to college, coming home, you know, starting my career you know, getting married and just living, living my life. Mm. And I think for me, the key to endurance is knowing that you'll get through it. You know, I mean, this coronavirus thing, yeah, it's bad. It, it, it can kill. It doesn't have, you know, it, it doesn't mean if you get it, you're going to die. But if you do what's been said, if you follow what we've been told, you stay in the house, you keep your distance, you only go to point A and get back, then we'll come out on the other side. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, if you're flitting around, you're not wearing your mask, you're talking to everybody, you're hugging people, you might even be kissing people, you know, well then, yeah. you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Yeah. But, um, for me, endurance comes from confidence. Mm. You know, and, um, I live, I live, you know, I live with that. I, I, you know, I live in my father's, you know, I live with his, his memory and I know that that's what he gave me. Mm -hmm. You know, I know that's, I know that's what he gave me. So, um. Wow. You, so en we, you endure by practicing one of the, the things that you miss so much about him. Which is an amazing paradox, isn't it? That, He's right. Ooh. Yep. To practice yeah. it makes you miss him all the more, but it's what allows I you know. to survive missing him. Uh, I wish he could see me now, but, mm. you know. Yep, life is, still, life is still good. Amen. Oh, what a, what a reunion that'll be. And, of course, I came to your parish after he had passed, so I can't wait to meet him. He's a legend in our community, <laughs> and I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. I hope he's everything you, you thought he was. That I can't wait to meet him, and I can't wait to meet your grandmother, Jenny. Oh, Oh, yeah. I've heard great things about her, too. Oh. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's beautiful, and, and I, yeah, I, I hear it. I hear it, and I feel it inside. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. The last question is about, you said 2030 feels too far off, and I agree. Let's talk about when we get beyond coronavirus, which we hope is is we know it'll be a a, a haul, but we've right. we're we're making our way through one day at a time. What are your best hopes for us after coronavirus? What do you think this time might teach us that could make us better, more noble, more resilient people? Well, it it kind of goes back to something I had said in the beginning. I I don't remember what question it was, but. We can't return to normalcy as we knew it. Yeah. Uh, we can't. We can't do that. 
Um, we we have to let go of you know the complacency that I think you know might be um, an attribute of of us as Americans, but um, it there has to be um, some changes. I mean, I think some things, good things that have come out of this. You know, you learn to live with less. Um, you slow down. Uh, you realize that you know um, you know you can you can be with your family and have fun and you know spend some time together that you don't normally get to do you know day to day when we're you know ripping and running you know all over the place. Yeah. But um, as a country, we have to you know knuckle down and and address. You know that that's going to be sort of the, um, you know the, the the fruit of of this whole thing. You know, besides the vaccine, you know what this what this has spawned is a whole new is is a whole new um, not a new but a whole movement, perhaps. Yes. You know, well, what came out of the coronavirus? Oh, the new civil rights movement. Yes. You know, yeah, we got the vaccine. <laughs> but we also got a new civil rights movement. Yes. And, you know, so, hey, does everything happen for a reason? Well, maybe that's why coronavirus happened. Mm. You know, as unfortunate as it was um, for George Floyd to lose his life, mm. you know, if there's a if there's a good thing about this, if his if his death is not in vain, then perhaps that's what has happened. You know, we've got a, a, a civil rights, a new civil rights movement. Mm. You know? I, I, I love that. And that, that does it. You know, I've heard one of our uh, earlier guests on this, on this podcast was saying, I don't think everything in life happens for a reason, but I believe it happens for a meaning. And if we can pull the meaning of human dignity, no matter your race, out of this. Whoa. That's right. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Right. And you know, I just, I just want to, I want to go back to, um, you know, when I was telling you about the, the library on Netflix. Yes. You know, I think a misconception that many people have about black people is that we know everything that's happened to black people. Ah. And I don't. Right. That's why I'm watching all these movies. I want to like knock them down and and know what our story is because I don't know everything. Sure. You know, nor does you know my mother's 85 years old. She doesn't know everything. Sure. Um, you know, there's scholars and there's 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 um, you know historians who you know you might say they do, and those are the people I look to. Hmm. You know, but I don't know everything. I don't know everything that's happened to every black person. I don't know everything about civil rights. Do I know some of the key points? Do I know, you know, the, the catalysts that that set the that set the whole movement in motion? Yes. You know, because hmm. yeah, that's that's what we all know. Yeah, you know we all know, and it's up to us to you know to look deeper and to find those things out. But every black person doesn't know everything that happens to black people. Amen. You know, and and that misconception has to has to go away. Has to go away too. We're all we're all doing our homework. We're yeah. all doing our homework, and it yeah because we all now recognize in a new way bystanders no more. Mm-hmm. We're mm-hmm. all in it. We're all right. in it. And, you know, another thing, too, is, um, you know, some people will say, people of other races will say, well, you know, if they see black people or, you know, they'll say, oh, well, our our other black friends don't act like that. Ah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, how are they supposed to act, you yeah. know, or how are they supposed to talk or, you know what I mean? Mm. So that's that whole, you know, misconception, you know, um, you know, I think about, you know, the Jeffersons and, 
Ah. You know, like, you know, Archie Bunker and all of that. You know, every black person doesn't act like George Jefferson. You know what I mean? Right. Um, every black person doesn't, or, and every white person isn't like Archie Bunker, you know? Right. Um, so. Yeah. It's so true. It's so mm-hmm. true. Well, I, I feel, I feel very inspired and and newly hopeful after chatting with you so i thank you so much for this and i just invite those listeners that are that are here just take a second and just ponder is there something from this conversation that spoke directly to your heart did you find yourself thinking of a situation that maybe you need to revisit in your memory or maybe even in a conversation with someone is there something that maybe you understood in a new way? Is there a way that if you disagreed with anything that you heard today that you can, you can ask yourself a little bit about why you might have disagreed or if it made you uncomfortable? If, you, if you're leaving with more questions than you came, that might not be a bad thing. Is there, is there any place you'd like to bring those questions to next? Joan, we thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this. And uh, let's hope that our conversation moves the dialogue just a tiny bit, even if it's just a tiny bit for, for those of us that are listening so that we start, you know, asking new questions and, uh, and trying new things. And I, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for your time today. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. God bless all of you. <laughs>